The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, uh, last week I introduced you to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's time to go there together again. Uh, let's come together into the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll find it in the Old Testament. It's on page 553. Uh, if you've got a different Bible, you can find it there after the book of Psalms, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. Come with me there to the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I admitted to you last week uh, the, the real uh, <laughs> uncertainty, perhaps, uh, trepidation that I feel approaching the book of Ecclesiastes. It's going to come out right away when we get into our text uh, today. Now, as you're moving there into Ecclesiastes, the big question that the, the writer, the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes is asking is, look, what's, what's life really for anyway? What do we get? Right? What am I going to get out of it? What, what gain do I have? That's the key word in the book of Ecclesiastes. What gain is there? Now, you know, if, if you're a person who's more inclined and in tune with financial things and you're interested in investments, you know that there's a difference between a good investment and a bad investment. And even if you're not into finances and even if that's not your, your interest and perhaps even your hobby, you know that there is a return potentially on an investment, positively or negatively. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes uses that metaphor of an investment and potential return and says, when I look at my life, the investment of my life, do I get a return or do I end up further uh, in the hole? Is there a return or not? The question that everybody asks, here's why the book of Ecclesiastes is so relevant. Here's why I think it's important for you and I as Christian believers to engage it. Because everybody asks the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes asks. Most people are not honest enough to admit it. But everybody asks these questions. Is life really worth it? What am I really going to accomplish at the end? Will I have anything to show at the end of my life? Those types of questions. Is it worth it? What will we have at the end of it all? What's the answer the preacher gives? Is there any gain to be had for all of my living? Is it worth it in the end? The answer the preacher says is no. No. Uh, and let's be clear. He is asking the question and answering it that way to draw you in to the conversation of, is that really true? Is it really true that at the end, life is meaningless? Is it really true that at the end, there's, there's no outcome? It, the, the preacher is asking what we call a rhetorical question. Asking it to get us to think. Asking to make a point to draw us into the conversation. Now, if you ask other people, like for example, uh, famed uh, militant atheist Richard Dawkins, he was asked, what is the purpose of life? Right, which everybody asked that question. It was asked in an interview context to famous Richard Dawkins. And his reply was, well, there is no purpose. And to ask what the purpose of life is, is a stupid question. It's the same type of question as asking, what is the color of jealousy? Now, to Dawkins, his point is, it's a senseless question. Don't even ask it. Life has such little meaning 
that the purpose of asking if life has any meaning is a worthless pursuit inherently. But, nevertheless, Dawkins himself does go on to answer the question later on. His answer is that the purpose of life is that human beings are just throwaway, disposable survival machines whose only purpose is simply to survive and replicate genes. That's it. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but to me, that is deeply unsatisfying as an answer. Uh, throwaway survival machines whose only purpose is genetic replication, the survival of our uh, human race. Deeply unsatisfying. Now, I imagine it's also deeply unsatisfying to Richard Dawkins actually. I imagine the answer is deeply unsatisfying to you, but here's the point the Ecclesiastes is getting to. Uh, just like it's asked of Richard Dawkins, everybody asks this question of their own life. You ask it. Your children will ask it. Your grandchildren will ask it. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, the stranger that you run into at the supermarket, right? Everybody cares about this. The question is, is do we as Christian believers have a compelling answer that is satisfying rather than Richard Dawkins, deeply unsatisfying genetic reproduction machines, right? Do you as a Christian believer have a compelling answer to compel your children, your grandchildren, and all the rest? We have to have a compelling answer. Otherwise, what will happen? They'll end up agreeing with Mr. Dawkins. So, we need a compelling answer. So, uh, we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to read uh, the preacher's opening poem. Uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 11. Let me pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures, and we'll see it together. Father, we come now to Your Word. We bless You that You are the God of revelation, both in creation, as we see that there is a Maker, that we are the product of Your hand. But Lord, we praise You also that You are the God of revelation in the Word. Here, you tell us what is true. You orient reality. You give us understanding of our own lives. And so, Lord, as we consider the words of the preacher, as we consider the purpose of existence, Lord, come now by your Holy Spirit and bless to us your Holy Word that we might read and, and inwardly receive into the deepest parts of who we are your truth. Come now, Lord, and bless your Word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, hear the Word of God, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11, under the heading, All is Vanity. This is the Word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So let's stay here and ask the question with the preacher, what does it matter? Now I said uh, at the beginning of the service that, that if you haven't uh, listened to the orientation to the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to need it because uh, interacting with the book of Ecclesiastes takes some very unique lenses for you as a reader of the Bible. Uh, it, it is very much unlike any other book. And if you're not understanding of the big picture, you will get lost in the apparent intricacies and contradictions of what the preacher is saying, wondering how this is even in the Bible to begin with. And actually, right away, that's evident here in the book of Ecclesiastes. What we have in verses 1 to 11 is the preacher's uh, opening statements, his opening poem, his opening assertion that he will go on through 10 chapters to say, I was right when I said that, and here's how I will show you that I'm right. He'll spend 10 chapters asserting the truth of what he said here, so we have to really understand what is he saying here. This poem, this opening uh, statement of his worldview is actually an illustration of his central, central point of the whole book, which is in verse 2. Verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And as a result, asking in verse 3, where's the gain? Where's the profit? What's the outcome at the end of all of it? Where are we going to get by living this life? And that is the subject of this opening dialogue, this opening text. Where's the outcome? Where's the progress? And here is what the preacher says. There isn't any. There isn't any, actually. There is no progress. So what, what we're going to see is the preacher make this argument in, in two phases. The first one, he's going to say, I'll prove it to you. Look at the world. And then I'll prove it to you even further. Look at your life. There's no progress. His argument is in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. People are born. People die. A generation comes and a generation goes. This past week, I was on uh, this, this wild website just trying to understand you know, what this is saying here. I found worldometer.com which apparently is an up-to-date metric tracking according to like global health statistics birth death rates and it ticks in real time it's really sobering actually to look at because the the, the speed at which life blossoms the speed at which life is extinguished is alarming and that's what the preacher says. Generation comes, generation goes. Tick, tick, tick. The earth remains forever, he says, though. What the preacher is going to do here is he's going to argue his thesis about the futility of human life, saying there is nothing to show for all of our efforts. There is nothing to show for living life under the sun. And I'll prove it to you with what we can observe in nature. 
So again, this is where we say you have to settle into how the preacher is interacting here because he's saying life is meaningless. There's nothing to gain. Here's why. I'll show you as you look at the natural world. He says in verse 5, think about the sun. Verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. He goes right away from talking about the generations, the generations coming, generations going, the earth remaining, but, verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. He is saying the sun is in this fixed pattern, isn't it? The sun rises and the sun sets. It hastens. The, the ESV text uses this word hastens. You see there's a footnote there in the ESV text. Uh, in Hebrew, it could also be translated as the earth pants. Right? And panting is what you do when you're breathing heavily, you're out of breath, and you're exhausted. The preacher is saying the sun is in this repetitious cycle and it is panting as it goes about it. The sun is exhausted with its constant cycle, struggling back to the same place where it was 24 hours ago, again and again and again and again and again, to say it's pure toil. It goes and goes and goes and goes, and where does it get? Nowhere. Why? Because it just starts all over again. The same cycle over and over and over. We speak of a daily grind, right? The sun doesn't get a weekend. It just goes and goes and goes around and around and actually gets nowhere. That's the sun. So the preacher says, think about the sun. Then he says, verse 6, think about the wind. I'll show you life is uh, futile. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Now, he said the sun, and the sun seems to make progress moving from east to west. There's a predictability about the pattern of the sun, and you might be tempted to think, no, the wind, it whips around. Usually it's in the west. Sometimes it's from the east, and north and the south. It whips. It goes around. We think maybe that the wind is blowing freely. Not so, the preacher says. It's going around on circuits and returning. The wind has predictable patterns that we call a jet stream, and modern aviation is based on the predictability of the jet stream. It moves in predictable patterns. Even the wind is caught in a rut of doing the same thing over and over and over. The sun, the wind. Then verse 7, the water. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. The preacher says, think about all that water. It's flowing and flowing and flowing and draining and draining and draining into larger bodies of water. And how come those larger bodies of water don't overflow? It drains and drains and drains. And where does the water go? It doesn't seem to overflow. It's likely that he has in mind the Dead Sea, right? Just by geography. The Dead Sea is the deepest sea on earth. It doesn't have any outlet and everything empties into there. It doesn't have an outlet, and yet the Dead Sea doesn't fill up and overflow. The sea isn't full. There's no gain. There's no change. The streams drain and drain and drain, but the sea doesn't overflow. And you might say, well, there's this thing called evaporation and precipitation and all the rest. And the preacher says, stop. Stop. Don't you ever consider the fact that the streams run and run and run and drain and drain and drain, but the water doesn't overflow? And you might say, well, I've never thought of the 
water that way, and the preacher says, that's why you're wrong. Because you're not factoring in the ceaseless toil of getting nowhere that the water shows you. Drains and drains and never empties. And the whole point of thinking about the sun, the wind, the water this way is to be one long illustration of the world operating in this incessant amount of activity that actually gains no progress. Spins and spins and spins and gets nowhere. Turns, 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 getting nowhere. For all the motion and the commotion, you would think that something would be accomplished and the preacher says, nope, it's just the appearance of progress. There's no gain. Like a cosmic hamster wheel, endless exertion, just spinning wheels. And the point is, if the basic elements of the earth sun, the wind, the water, if the sun, the wind, and the water gain nothing from all of their turmoil, what makes you think you're going to gain anything from yours? Surely, if the natural order has no gain to its incessant toil, then surely you don't either. So which is then he jumps into the parallel. See, there's nothing gained in the natural order. There's nothing gained in your life either. The sum of the argument then is in verse 8. He says, all things. The all things there is in reference to verses 5, 6, and 7. What he just said. All things are full of weariness. And man cannot utter it. Now, there are, there are likely... There's a continuum of thoughts that you're going to have about that statement. There are some of you who read that statement and you say, man... That's an awful way to look at the world. This guy needs a cup of coffee and a hug. Get over it, right? But there are some of you who are on the opposite end of the spectrum and say, yeah, I get that. Ceaseless toil, I'm wore out, wrung out, and getting nowhere, what's the point? And there's a continuum in between to be sure, right? But the preacher is saying, this life thing is so exhausting, it's hard to even put to words. So he makes this argument from our lives, the mouth, the ear, the eye. Nobody can speak meaningfully of something, uh, the, cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It's the same old, same old of things to think about, look about, talk about, all the rest. Same old, same old. You know what this makes me think of? The infinite scroll. Do you know what I mean? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you're not into that stuff, right, you just check out for a second. Or, but you see other people do it. They're wearing their thumb out as they scroll, 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 scroll. You know there's no bottom. You know that, don't you? You're not going to reach post one of Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You might try, scroll, 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 scroll. You're going to wear your thumb out before you find it. It's exhausting, right? What's the point? You're not even looking at what you're looking at. You're just glazed over. The preacher says, what's the point? There's nothing new, nothing to think about, nothing to look at, nothing really to talk about. So then he says, verse 9, this is how all human life is. 
What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is, the famous phrase from Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Frantic activity, no progress. Sun, water, all the rest. Frantic activity, no progress. And you know what? Again, the people who are on this side of the spectrum who want to give a cup of coffee and a hug to the preacher, they want to say, that's not true. There is true progress. There is so progress in this human race. Think of all the inventions. Think of the breakthroughs. Think about the vaccinations. But he says in verse 10, he anticipates your response. If you're so convinced that there's something new, if you think that he's lying when he says there's nothing new under the sun, he anticipates your comment when he says in verse 10, Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. So if you've got a a rebuttal to his argument, there is too something new, he already has a response to you. No, 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 that's been here before, you just forgot about it. So, for example, when babies are born, babies have been born in the past. That's hard for me to say without a smile because I'm a little bit excited about the babies born in our lives in the last year, right? But the preacher's making the point. Look, babies have been here before. When wars are fought, people have been fighting wars in the past, right? In light of this repetitive cycle, the things that we allege to be new are just really variations of old things, repackaged. That's true of fashion, isn't it? Not that I know anything about fashion. Fashion just comes on a cycle. I remember when I was in junior high school, girls were wearing bell bottoms. And all the baby boomers were saying, hey, I still got some of those in my closet, right? It's just variations of things that have already been. So, for example, Alexander Graham Bell made the first telephone 131 years before Steve Jobs introduced the world to iPhone. And we want to say iPhone revolutionized the world. Oh, really? Did it? Apple has less than 25% market share of smartphones in the entire world. The Apple iPhone did not revolutionize the world. And at the end of the day, any smartphone, regardless of the platform, is still just a phone. Big deal, the preacher says. The final phase of his argument, he says, verse 11, because this is true, because of this incessant activity, verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. People have mountains named after them. Explorers hike up to new heights, name the mountain after them, and then they die and somebody comes in after them and puts a new flag and names it after them. People who give lots of money have buildings named after them. Those buildings will eventually be torn down or remodeled completely. I grew up in West County, St. Louis, and across the river into Illinois is the ancient civilization of Cahokia. I don't know if any of you ever heard of this. Cahokia was once the largest city in North America until Philadelphia surpassed it in the 1800s. It's ancient Native American community of the Mississippi River Valley. Uh, used to be some 40,000 people back then. That was huge cities. Today, it is a national historic landmark and one of only 24 UNESCO World Heritage Sites in the United States. But growing up, along the interstate, it's just a bunch of hills. And I don't care. Right? Ten-year-old Zach does not care. And that's exactly what the preacher is saying. 
an entire civilization and culture that was once the apex of North America is just a passing mound of dirt to future generations. That's why the preacher says there is no remembrance of former things. And if that is true of times and places over a thousand years ago, you should admit the fact that you feel that way about your life too. When you observe that life isn't how you remember it. Right? Life doesn't look like it used to when you were growing up. However many years ago that was, and your early childhood years feels like some long-forgotten time that will never come back of a totally different place. It's the perpetual, you know, when I was your age story that's actually just a, a veiled complaint. So, so, the preacher says, so what does it matter? What does it really matter? And the key of understanding the way he's doing this, the key of understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is that if you view life, in his famous phrase, under the sun, if you view life on only a horizontal horizon and you do not factor in heaven, if you live life only under the sun, the answer to the question, what will you gain from all your toil, is absolutely nothing for all of your incessant energy. You will make no progress and you will have nothing to gain. If you're looking at life only under the sun from ground level, without factoring God in whatsoever, it's all worth nothing. But, but, and this is why this is so important, not only for you, but for your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. What if there is a God in heaven? What if there is a God in heaven who rules over your life under the sun and therefore gives it meaning? The preacher says, this is the big thing that he wants you to understand. The reason why the preacher goes to such lengths to show the weariness of our existence, making us more and more disillusioned with life under the sun, right? Because if you're listening to what I'm saying and you're not really paying attention, you're thinking, good grief, Zach's off his rock. What is he talking about, right? Because the preacher wants to take you down that road of inevitable conclusions to dead ends. And you'll feel that way again and again and again under Ecclesiastes. But... The reason why he does so is so you will be led not to expect to find your ultimate meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in things under the sun, but rather God in heaven. From that perspective, what is life for? What is life for? You know people who answer questions with questions? They drive you nuts? People who answer a question with a question? You know who does that most of all? Jesus. Jesus answers the preacher's question, what's it all for, with another question when he asks in Matthew 16, 26, what will it gain you, to use the language of Ecclesiastes, what will it gain you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? To fill up with life under the sun and totally neglect life before God. 
When people forfeit their life, they gain nothing. There's no profit from all of it. Jesus makes this point again and again in the gospel narratives, telling story after story of people building up their lives, building bigger and bigger barns to store more and more of their stuff that will eventually just rot, be owned by somebody else, be burned up, go to waste anyway. And Jesus' point all along is, what are you really seeking to gain? Because if it's earthly things, you'll get them and you'll have your fill and it'll get you nowhere. But if you're seeking to gain eternal things, you'll find it in me, Jesus says. Jesus' message is quite clear. We will gain nothing if we store up treasures on earth, but our lives can have meaning. Our lives can have true profit, true gain if we have placed our hopes and made our investments on things that really matter. So let me tell you, as a Christian believer, committing yourself to that doesn't mean you will never feel frustrated with your life. It doesn't mean you won't ever have problems. It doesn't mean that you won't ever feel like you're stuck in the daily grind and there's kind of no activity from all your activity. It doesn't mean you won't feel that way from time to time. But if you view your life not just under the sun, but before the sight of God, it will change the entire way you view everything. For example, the preacher gave the illustration of the sun, the wind, the waters. If you view life more than just under the sun, you will see, for example, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 113 says, from the rising until its setting, of the sun, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The stirring of the winds, Psalm 147, verse 18, the Lord God rides on the wings of the wind. Job 36, speaking of the flowing waters, he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist like rain, which the skies pour down and drop on the earth with abundance. Life isn't purposeless, life isn't meaningless. The movement of the sun, the wind, the waters proclaim the glory of God. And if your life does too, it'll have meaning. And if it doesn't, it won't. It's just that simple. And it's just that complex. If nothing matters, well, then nothing matters. But the point of Ecclesiastes ultimately is that everything matters. Your life matters your children's lives matter, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, your co-workers, the job that you do, everything matters before God as a Christian believer. If your life is viewed not just under the sun, but before God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would bless it to us, that you would conform our lives to it as we seek the wisdom of the preacher, which is ultimately the wisdom of Christ himself. And Lord, bless us as we grow in his image. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.